So if you have your Bible, you'll want to keep it close, but uh, you'll probably want to track along with the scriptures that are going to appear on the screen for you, because we're going to cover a lot of ground and a lot of different passages today. So to kind of give context for where we are this morning, we have been walking through a series through this month, and this is the, the finale of the series, just three weeks as we've walked in through a, a focusing on the Christmas season, but not necessarily the Christmas narrative or story that we normally would turn to, like in Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1, but, but looking at, at something probably a little bit deeper than what we would normally do. And, and the series that we've been walking through is entitled, Do, do You Really Know?, and, and focusing in on this reality of... Of, of do we really know how much God loves us? We, we say that the phrase, it's been said a lot in the, our culture even, that God loves you. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to actually love us? And this series was inspired in me. I mentioned this last couple weeks, but in, in November I was coming out of a meeting and I was headed home down to L.A. And, and uh, my, I, I don't normally cry, but all of a sudden the, the Lord just came over me with this kind of weight of his love for our city and for our church. And and I couldn't stop crying all the way home. And I just felt this, this, this question that came in. It was like God saying, do people really know? Do they really know how deep my love is and what I've gone through for them? And as I'm looking at people who are just driving by, and, and for many of us too, just kind of going through our daily lives and our daily routine, and sometimes even our, our annual routine where we go through another Christmas season, and we really haven't embraced fully what it means for God to love us in our life. And so the last couple of weeks, we talked about uh, what it, it really over time was, what does it mean for Jesus to do what he did for us? And so two weeks ago, we talked about that he was willing, though he was fully God, to become a human being. And then last week, we talked about what did it mean for him to live as a human being. And, and then today, we're going to talk about what did it mean for him to experience his death and his resurrection. Now, we're kind of, kind of looking behind the scenes to, to see what's there because if you and I have this, this concept, this grasp of God's love, uh, then we understand the relationship he desires for us. And the reason this is important is that, that many of us, we, we go through seasons of our life, and especially if you're, if before you actually came to understand who Jesus is in your life, that you are unaware of all of the things that God was up to in your life. And then one day the light kind of came on for you. And I think sometimes we live that way even after we've come to know who Jesus is. That we forget about all of the activity, what God is doing. That he's constantly pursuing us and that he's working out circumstances in our life for his purpose and his good and trying to get our attention. And meanwhile, we're just kind of going on with our daily lives and our normal routines. It's kind of like the, the, the way a baby kind of lives in their early stages. So we have our, the little foster baby we have right, her name is, uh, right now. Her name is B. She's six months old. Uh, we've had her since she was three days old. And uh, so we've watched her develop over six months. But I was thinking about her, looking at her the other day, and, and she's starting to get her personality, and, and she's more fun because she's, you know, when the kids get older, they start to interact more. And, but I was just looking at her, and, and we only have babies for a period of time, and our goal is to reunite them with their families, and, and B's on that track right now with her mom, and it's great. But, but I was just thinking, you know, when, when she leaves our house, she's not going to remember us. You think, oh, that's sad. Yeah, no, it is sad, but she's going to feel the impact of our influence on her life. Because what she's not going to remember is she's not going to remember that for the first six months of her life, there were people who changed her poopy diapers, who got up in the middle of the night when she was crying, who fed her, who bathed her, who protected her, who cared for her. She's not going to remember any of that, but she's going to feel the impact because there's that something that's true of us as we grow older, as we're, when we're really young, we don't know all of what our parents did for the first couple years of our lives, but we know because we're alive that somebody had to be there to sustain us, to care for us, to make sure that we made it through each day. 
on a bigger scale, that's the way God is always at work. And it's not that he ever rests. He doesn't. He's always pursuing. He's always coming after us. He's always trying to get our attention. He's always trying to demonstrate his love in our lives. And it's moments like this, and I think in this season that God says, listen, I I want you to take a look deeper and realize how much I love you, what I've gone through for you, what I've gone through for the world. Because when we come to grips with that, then we realize that the way we live our lives every day will change dramatically if we realize God did that for me. He went to that length for me. He went to that depth for me. And so this morning, we're going to look at two things that normally we would think, well, this is more of what we talk about at Easter, his death and his resurrection. But If we're honest with ourselves, the significance of Jesus' birth comes through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because if those things, the way he lived his life, and the way he died, then he rose from the dead, if those things don't happen, then he's just another human being coming through human history. But he's far more than that. He's the God of the universe in human flesh. And so this morning, we want to take some time to take a look at what he went through for us, looking at the crucifixion and then the resurrection. So I want to start off with the crucifixion and talk about what Jesus and his love was willing to endure for us, what he walked through. Now, this first section is a little heavy because we're going to talk about some of the details and specifics of what Jesus went through physically on our behalf. Uh, we're, it's, it's so many times, especially if you've been in church, we can kind of, just by rote, we can we can kind of spew out the, the Christmas narrative and even Jesus' death and resurrection and Jesus died for my sins and so I'm forgiven. But what does that mean? Jesus died for me. What did he go through? So three things I just want to highlight about his suffering for us and a demonstration of his love. The first thing is what Jesus endured for us is suffering to the cross. The suffering he experienced on his way to the cross. So obviously we you understand the story behind you know what Jesus did for us is that he became human, and he lived this perfect life, and then he goes on trial because the religious leaders are threatened by him, and so they trump up charges on him. They, put him, they, they create this bogus trial. He's convicted according to their, their rules and regulations, and so now he's going to be eventually sentenced to death. So as, after he goes through all of that, and, and he's now at a place where now he's going to head towards the cross, um, because of the physical suffering he endures, the prophet Isaiah said this of Jesus Years and years before this occurred in Isaiah 52, verse 14. It says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. That's a prophecy that came far, far be before the, the, the suffering of Jesus. But Jesus went through such physical suffering on the way to the cross. Sometimes we... We forget that part of the journey. We just skip to his death and his resurrection. Hey, we're good. But just to pause for a moment and think about that. Most of us in the room have seen the the movie The Passion of the Christ or some other rendition of of Jesus' journey to the cross. So if you think for a moment, what did he go through? Again, can you imagine you're, you're completely innocent of anything that's ever been said of you that's wrong, and yet now you're going towards this horrific end to your life. So Jesus is arrested, he's, he's immediately pushed around, and he's punched, and he's spit on, and he's mocked. And that happens at the hands of the temple guards, and at, hands, at the hands of the Roman soldiers. And as he's going through that, that's not bad enough. We know that he ends up before Pilate, and Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. And so through kind of the two appearances before Pilate, Jesus ends up and he gets, he gets flogged. Now, when we think about what it meant to be whipped or flogged, uh, we don't have a concept for it, because in, in, especially in our country, you know, we have a very kind of high value of human rights, and so we have kind of a, anything that doesn't seem right, we're like, oh, that's unfair, that's, that's inhumane. Well, this was more than inhumane. 
what Jesus went through. So after, after he's, he's spit on, he's beaten, he's punched, he's kicked, then he's sent to be flogged. And I, you know, from my, my brief study in history, what, what you see depicted in the Passion of the Christ in that scene is probably pr- relatively accurate. See, because we think about, you know, the Jews had a rule that when someone was flogged in their system— you would say they would be flogged or they would be whipped 39 times because somehow 40 was considered kind of the point of death where you'd kind of cross over. Now there's like the point of no return. The Romans didn't have that rule. They had whatever they wanted to do, they would do. And so, so Jesus wasn't beaten or whipped 39 times most likely. It was beyond that. It was just overkill. And so to the point where, where flogging was not meant to just just in, in the moment inflict pain on somebody, but it was meant to inflict pain that may lead to death that would go on and on and on. And so if you've seen the images, you know, from the Passion of the Christ, Jesus just didn't have like, you know, a swollen back. He had a back that was just just ripped to the point where his flesh was just hanging on his back. And so he's bleeding profusely. So most many people who would have subjected to that in Roman times would have died right there. But Jesus survives, but he's losing blood. And, and if that's not enough, and then he's, then he's forced to journey to the cross. Now, from what we can tell from history, we're not exactly, you know, we'll, we'll know, obviously, when we stand face to face with Jesus. But from, from that time in Roman history, most of those who were crucified didn't carry a full crucifix. They would carry the cross beam, and they would be, that would be about 100 to 110 pounds. So regardless if Jesus dragged across or he carried that, can you imagine you're losing blood, you've been beaten, and you're, you're, you're in so much pain, and then this huge weight is thrown on you, and now you're forced to carry that to the cross. Knowing what happens, knowing that honestly, because Jesus knew and the people knew that what was, he was going to experience on the cross was actually going to be worse than what he had just walked through, but even feeling that. So he's, he's taking this journey, he's, he's walking this out. Why? So that we would feel bad for him, that we'd feel conviction for him, that we'd feel shame for him. No, so that we would know how much he loves us. And we'll get to the point of why he would do all this, but so he goes through this incredible physical suffering on his journey to get to the cross. And he walked, some would say a, a third, up to a half a mile with that weight on his back with him bleeding. And finally then he gets to the cross, which is the second thing. Jesus endured, his love endured for us, the suffering on the cross. So Jesus gets to the cross, and Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus went through incredible suffering. So he gets to the cross. He gets to the place of crucifixion. And so you understand crucifixion. We have nothing today, nothing that comes even close to what crucifixion was. Because crucifixion was not just created to end somebody's life. It was created to bring torture and humiliation to them on the way to their death. So it's the physical torture, but it's also the mental torture, knowing you're going to die. You just don't know how long it's going to take and how much pain you're going to go through. It was designed for, with pain in mind, but prolonged pain. So Jesus gets to the cross, and when they nail him to the cross, what we understand is most likely the nails were not in his palms. They were in his wrists, which is far more painful because the weight of his body couldn't be held by his palms. So the nails are driven, but, but this is what's just... They, they thought through every detail because the, the death in crucifixion normally wasn't going to be from blood loss. It was going to be through asphyxiation. It was be through suffocation. It was designed that way. 
So when they put someone on the cross, when they put Jesus on the cross, they laid him there. We always have this picture that the vertical beam had this like little pedestal that the, the person being crucified would put their heels on so they could support themselves. They didn't have that. In fact, what they do is they take someone's foot and they lay it flat on the vertical beam and then they put the other foot on top and then they drive one nail right through both of them. And that was done on purpose with their legs slightly bent. So that when they were raised up and put on the cross and they're hanging there, now they have a decision to make. Every single breath they take is a decision. Because now with their body slumped over and the weight of their upper body now pressing down on their lungs, in order for them to straighten themselves up and in order for them to get enough room in their chest cavity to allow their lungs to expand, they'd have to push up with their legs. And the only thing supporting their legs was the nail driven through both of their feet onto the cross. So every single breath was excruciating. And so Jesus, we know, hung for about six hours is what we think. And so six hours of every single breath is this battle of pain and struggle and suffering that Jesus is going through and not knowing how long is this going to last. And then on top of that, because it's designed not only for torture and then eventual death, but it's designed for humiliation. So you hang there on that cross while the Roman soldiers continue to mock you and the Jewish leaders stand in the background with this indignant look on you like you deserve this and then surrounded with those who love Jesus just in tears knowing that they were completely helpless, watching you die. This is Jesus' experience. And all the while he's going through this, he knows he's doing this because he loves us. And that's what's driving him through this. That's what's giving him the courage to do what he's doing. And then the final point of suffering of what Jesus was willing to endure through his love was the suffering from the cross. So this is more of kind of the reality of the spiritual encounter that's happening for Jesus on the cross and what it's meaning for us when what he's doing not only is he suffering physically and dying physically but there's something even bigger than that he's actually paying a price for us in fact what the bible tells us is that what Jesus was doing when he hung on the cross is that he was being the sacrifice for all of us for all time and the sacrifice that did what the sacrifice that absorbed the wrath of god which is the justice and the judgment of god placed on sin, on our sin, which we deserve. Our sin and our failure separates us from God. And because God is just, in a justice system, you have to balance the scales. And so where there is a violation, which is sin, there has to be something to pay for that, to bring justice. And so Jesus is justice on the cross. So he is now enduring the wrath of God. In fact, listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 to 39. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's moments before he's going to go. He's going to be arrested and head towards the cross. It says, Then he said to them, talking to his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And then going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was going on there? Was Jesus saying, take this cup of crucifixion from me? No, he wasn't saying that. What he was saying is that the cup is always symbolic of the wrath of God throughout Scripture. He's saying, I know it's about to come. I know after I'm arrested and I'm tortured, I'm going to go to the cross. And in that moment, beyond the physical excruciating pain that I'm going to go through, in a moment, I'm going to take on all of the sin for all of humanity for all time. Just think about this for a moment. Think about your sin. Just yours, alone. Okay, just think about what you've done in your lifetime. None of us are proud of a lot of things that we've done in our lives. 
And you just take that and then multiply that billions and billions and billions and billions of times. In one moment, Jesus takes all of that, takes on the wrath of God, the judgment of God poured out on him. In fact, it's so excruciating what Jesus is about to walk through. Listen to what it says in Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, this is again before he goes that, down that road, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He knew what he was going to face. See, we knew that the, the cup represents God's wrath because earlier when Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, listen, we will follow you through anything. We'll experience anything. We'll, we're right there with you. We're really committed. And Jesus says to them, no, you don't get it. You can't drink from this cup. He wasn't talking about the cup of, of, of crucifixion because, in fact, some of those he talked to, some of his earliest disciples ended up being crucified. But Jesus was talking about something bigger, something bigger, the wrath of God poured out on him for us. And then what goes beyond that is because sin is a violation, because sin separates us from God, what Jesus, now we don't know exactly how this works, but we're not God. But on the cross, Jesus experiences some kind of isolation from God that is the sting of death, that is this separation that ultimately each human being is headed for apart from Jesus. A place of complete isolation in relationship to God. That's what hell is in eternity, that there's a separation that we can't relationally connect to God forever. In a moment, Jesus feels something of that. He captures something of that because we know in Mark 15, verse 33, it says, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lavasamachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you see Jesus pray throughout the Gospels, he doesn't say God. He usually says Father. But in this place, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? And so some people say, well, God couldn't have turned his back on, on his son because that would somehow violate the, 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 the Trinity. And again, it's a theological thing that's beyond our understanding. But somehow on the cross, Jesus is experiencing some point of complete isolation. Why? Because sin is now on him. It's been placed on him. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, For our sake he, was made, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus became the sin offering. He, does not, he didn't become a sinner. Jesus was never a sinner. But he took on sin and became a sin offering for us. Just Can you imagine what that would be like? And, and the reason this is significant is because whether we know it or not, one of the greatest pains of the human soul is isolation. And I talked about this last week. But I have people come to, say, I, come to me and say, I'm fine. I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I like to be alone. Oh, no, you don't. Why do you think we have a thing called solitary confinement? Because it does more than just physically separate somebody from human beings. It separates them emotionally and mentally. And it can cause you to go crazy. What Jesus was capturing is what all of people, all those who would refuse to accept Jesus and to embrace him and to follow him and to know God's love and walk in that forgiveness and walk in the beauty of that relationship, all those who reject that will experience that kind of isolation for eternity, which is the only the outcome and the outflow of our lives. And that's when people come to me and somehow say, God is not fair because why would God send someone to hell? That's somebody who doesn't know the truth of the gospel. Because Jesus has done everything in his power to avoid someone from going to hell. They're the ones that ultimately choose the outcome. They choose where they're going to end up. 
And if that's true, then that means that God loves us so much that he said, listen, I have done all this to demonstrate to the world and to you, this is how much I love you. If you'll embrace this sacrifice and you'll embrace this person and you'll know me personally, then you'll be able to be safe from that, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But Jesus goes through all of this and all the while he's doing this. Why? Because he loves humanity. He loves the world. And he's trying to not only demonstrate that, but he's trying to secure a way that ultimately human beings can experience the depth of that love. That's the crucifixion. But now we turn the page and we talk about the resurrection. And this is significant because the resurrection is what verifies and what validates the crucifixion. See, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, guess what? Jesus is just another death by crucifixion throughout Roman history. But he's not because he came back. And there's three things that we want to highlight of what Jesus accomplished. What does love accomplish through the resurrection for us? And the first one is this. It's the concept of liberation, that we've been set free. We've been liberated from what? Which, what, what the outcome of sin is, is death. Sin enters the equation, and as it works its way in our life, what happens is we no longer do we have the capacity to live forever, which is what God created in Adam and Eve. But because sin enters in, sin over time leads to death. And ultimate death is not just physical death, it's separation from God. But Jesus in his resurrection now provides a way to be free from the sin that we had that would keep us away from God. Listen to what Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and then verses 20, and 20 to 22. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also Christ will be made, and all Christ will be made alive, will be made alive. So that means that we get to experience a liberation from the greatest enemy of all of us. The greatest enemy of your soul is not the devil. It's death. That's what it is. Think about it. All of us face death. All of us will face physical death. But there's a death that's greater than that. But Jesus' resurrection changes everything. That means the one thing that is something that all of us dread, that day is coming someday when we will die, and none of us wants to go there. We want to we make sure we can sustain our lives, but that all comes for all of us. But to know that that death no longer is the end, that death becomes a doorway into eternity. It changes everything. It should change everything. We should not live our lives in trying to maintain our lives so that we can avoid death. We don't have a death wish on our lives. We don't go out looking to die every day. But we shouldn't live in this constant fear. Why? Because we know that the, de- the death for us, if you know Jesus, is never the end. It's not the end. In fact, I, I caught a glimpse of this. This last week, I watched a couple of documentaries and stuff on the, the, uh, the U.S. Airways uh, Flight 1549 that went down in the Hudson River. And in fact, the movie Sully just came out recently. Kim and I watched that the other night. And it's just fascinated by that whole experience. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pilot, but Kim's brother's a pilot, and I've been very interested in aviation. What, what Captain Sullenberger did with that aircraft is nothing less than miraculous. To land an aircraft on water and keep it intact enough to save 155 lives has never been done in aviation history. It's incredible. So I was intrigued by all the details of how it happened. And so I was watching one documentary, and they, they had all, these, all the people that were a lot on the plane that were these eyewitnesses that experienced the flight, and they went through each step of the flight. And what happened? They had a bird strike at 2,800 feet that took out both engines. That never happens. It's usually one engine. 
And so they literally became a glider at 250 miles an hour at 2,800 feet. Can you imagine? Now what do you do? And then you're over the most densely populated area in, the, in probably the world, in Manhattan. I mean, so there's like no like good place to land. And so they go through the whole process, and they're, they're, they're kind of taking each step. And so, so they're interviewing different survivors, and they're talking about when they realized, okay, we're going to crash. When that kind of hit everybody on the plane, everybody did different things. I mean, people are grabbing each other's hands. People are praying. People are trying to text their loved ones. People are saying we're going to die. There's all these reactions all over, but everybody is just resolved in this reality. We're going down, and we're all going to die. It's just a matter of how long this is going to happen before the end comes. So as they're kind of unfolding the story, and then eventually they finally, they land on the water, which they all said was the roughest experience they've ever had. It's like hitting concrete. And then when the plane finally kind of comes to a point of being still in the water, this one guy said this. I captured, just caught my attention. He said, I got giddy. He said, I thought I was going to die, and I wasn't going to die, at least not right then. And he goes, I started like laughing. And it's like, because I realized I wasn't going to die. And I was so happy we had survived the crash. And the other people, like, there's this sense of relief. And then there was some sense of terror because they look out the window, and there's water there. So, but it was this sense of, like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die today. And because of that, there's this incredible joy in my life right now. Because I'm not dead. I should be dead, but I'm alive. I'm not going to die. If you feel that when you're surviving a plane crash, how much greater do you and I feel that when we realize we've been liberated from death? I mean, I, I wish I could bring her back. She would, please, she would say, please don't. But if I could bring Mary Weir back right now, she'd say, please don't. She goes, she'd tell us, I would rather be with Jesus than to be here, although she loves us all. She would rather be with him. Why? Because there's life after death. Now, Mary hasn't experienced the fullness of resurrection yet, but we know from what Paul tells us, she's in the presence of the Lord, which is, I'm sorry, church is pretty good, but presence of God, way better, Okay. <laughs> But just to think about that, we've been set free from that. That's what Jesus, his love endured that to set us free so that death is not this thing that now we have to live in constant fear of every day of our life because ultimately Jesus has overcome that. Second thing, Jesus through his love has accomplished for us through the resurrection a thing called reconciliation. Again, Jesus' death is the, excuse me, his resurrection is the verification of his death and he has power over death But through his death and his resurrection, he has brought us back into right relationship with God. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is all about relationship. This is all about us connecting with God. Every person who's ever been created, who's ever lived, has some concept, whether they want to admit or not, that there is a God because it's innate in each one of us. But unless people understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, they will never be able to connect ultimately to a relationship with God, which is why we were created. If you don't believe that, go back to Genesis, and you will realize that God created Adam and Eve to to relate in direct face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. God would come walking in the garden. God would spend time with them as we spend time with each other. That's the way God designed us. But sin comes in, and that relationship is lost. And so because of that, something has to be done to reconnect the very purpose of why we exist. So Jesus, through his death and resurrection, reunites us back with God again. So now we have relationship. Why is that significant? 
Because when you, just put it in human terms, when you find one or two relationships in your life that are totally life-giving, that you love spending time with that person, and you know something about you in a positive way changes when you're around them, and you want to be around them more. That's a small glimpse of what happens when we're reconnected with God. Now, I know I have some really close friends, but I know with, my, with Kim, who's my wife, I know that's when, when, we, when we first met and we were starting to get to know each other, I remember the first date, we both had gone on a lot of really crummy first dates. You're like, man, why did I, to me, I'm like, why did I waste my money? You know, honestly, I was just, and then she's like, why did I waste my time? Why did I go out with that guy? We got on the first date, and I remember driving home like, what in the world was that? I was waiting for, like, candid camera to pop out, like, this is way too good to be true, because I'm looking at her, and even as we're having dinner, I'm thinking, where have you been my whole life? You're different than anybody else I've dated before, and that was the way it unfolded, and so because that was like this understanding, this realization that we knew that in our relationship that we drew the best out of each other, and that's why the more we spent time with each other, the better we were, the better we were in following Jesus. not that we relied solely on each other. We knew that our relationship with God was far greater than our relationship with each other. But if that's what happens in our human capacity as we relate to friends or to a spouse, can you imagine when you're reconnected with God, the God of the universe who created you, who put blood in your veins and gave you life, can you imagine how things can change for you and I? Just think about that. And then some of us think, it's not changed much for me. Do you really know him? Do you really know him? Or do you know church and religion? Or do you know obligation? Or do you know the law? Or do you know all the things that we make our faith out to be? But you don't really know Jesus yet. Because if you knew him, everything would change about your life. Because you have this, again, this connection, this relationship with the God of the universe. And then finally this. Jesus' love for us accomplished something else. And this has to do more with Jesus and what he's done to demonstrate his love for us than necessarily, necessarily specifically to us the concept of glorification. So let me explain what I mean. So Jesus, this is what, this is what, in fact, I had, I, every time I've shared this, I had multiple people come to me, I didn't, I never knew that. We don't think about this, but, but you need to think about this. So Jesus became, he's God, became human. We've talked about that. And he didn't just kind of like, okay, I'm going to check out of being God, and I'm going to check into being human, and then after 33 years, I'll go back to being God again. He's fully God, fully man, but he fully embraced humanity in all aspects of being human, not just when he walked on the planet. So let me explain. So when Jesus died and then he rose again, the Bible tells us that he's raised in what people will call either a resurrected body or a glorified body. It looks just like his former body. It feels like his former body, but it's a whole lot more. It had a physical reality to it because we know when he encountered his disciples, they actually could physically touch him. He could actually eat food. But we also know that there was a bigger reality to it because there were moments when the disciples were in an enclosed room with the door closed and no windows open and Jesus just appeared. So somehow he gets there, and he's, but he's in his, this glorified body. Why is that significant? Because his glorified body is something that's still a part of who he is. So listen to what Paul says in Philippians, two, or Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, for, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What is Paul saying? The very body that Jesus had after the resurrection is the kind of body that we're going to get. But what is Paul saying? He has that body now. Why is that significant? Because Jesus, the God of the universe, has chosen to attach to himself a resurrected body 
for the rest of eternity. You think, ah, big deal. No, big deal. The God of the universe who has no limitations and from what we know in scripture doesn't have a physical body has chosen not only to have a body for 33 years but to have a resurrected body forever. Talk about limitations. So when Jesus made a decision to become human, he didn't make a decision to become human for 33 years. He made a decision to become fully God and fully human for all of eternity. That's why we sing, there's songs that we sing, when we see him, we will be like him. Like him like God? No, like him like glorified body, like resurrected body, like walk on water, walk through walls, but still eat and hug people, that kind of stuff. He has that body. Is that crazy? The God of the universe is attached to himself, a resurrected body, for the rest of human history. Why? Because he knew for him to become fully human and be fully God and to go through his suffering and his death and his resurrection, he had to go all in. And so he allowed himself to be affected for the rest of eternity to say to the world, I love you this much. And we don't even think about that. We don't even think about it. He didn't just say, okay, I'm in the physical body, and boom, now I'm back to being fully God again, and so I don't have to be limited by any. No, he continued to be subjected to the reality of humanity for all of eternity. And when we see him, we're going to go, whoa. Just like Thomas, we're going to say, I see the nail marks in your, your wrists and in your side and in your feet, and I touch you, and I know you're real. Why? Because he attached that to himself. He didn't unclothe humanity. He left it on in a resurrected state for us. And just think about that. Just, just think about all that Jesus went through. You know, we always go to this, the Christmas story, which is wonderful, and we think about the, the nativity scene, and everything looks so nice and neat and wonderful, and it wasn't that way. Think about that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we know the goodness of God, the goodness of Jesus, that for our sakes, though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. What is he talking about? That the God of the universe would find himself in the form of a baby. I'll never forget what pastor preached this passage and talked about claustrophobia. So talk about claustrophobia, if you have that. Being God and then being human in Mary's womb in the body of a baby boy. That's crazy. Why? Because he loves us. I'm going to ask you if you would just close your eyes. I'm going to go through some things, but I, I do that periodically because I don't want you to worry about me and worship team's going to come and join me. We're going we're gonna to sing a couple songs before we conclude. But I want you to capture again, as we kind of conclude this series, what is it that Jesus has done for you and I? What has he gone through to say once and for all, this is how much I love you. And this is how much I desire you to know me so that you can be reconciled back to God. So we know that God loves us so much that although Jesus was fully God in every aspect of who he is, we know because he loved us, he clothed himself, he put on the clothing of being human and intentionally did not allow his privileges as God to be used for his benefit, but he shielded that part of himself for our benefit. And then in becoming human, remember, he became fully human. 
he suffered, suffered in temptation. There were moments where he was tired and hungry and thirsty. There were moments where he was rejected by those who were closest to him. And he walked out that life in the fullness and knows everything we go through, knows the temptation we feel, knows the suffering we experience. He knows all of that because he lived it fully. And then, knowing that he would come to the moment that he would go through the beating, the mocking, the punches, even the crown placed on his head that would even increase the blood flow again from his body, knowing that that journey of suffering would lead to the cross, the ultimate physical suffering for us. But then he knew beyond that, in that moment, as that sacrifice on the cross, far beyond the moment in time, far beyond the physical pain he was experiencing, that the wrath of God would be poured out on him as a shield. He would be a shield for all of humanity. He would endure that punishment for us and say that I will take that on and become that offering of, of for, the, for all of people, for all humanity, because I love them. And then, and then, because he was perfect, he rose from the dead, destroying the very thing that causes all of us to fear. All the while, speaking volumes of his love for humanity. So that today, he could say to you and to me, do you really know? Do you really know my love for you? There's moments where you've questioned me. There's times where you've wondered, am I present? There's times that you've been angry at me because you feel like I've treated you unfairly. And Jesus is saying to us today, do you really know all that I've gone through, even when you didn't? Even if you don't know me today, Jesus is saying all of this went on for you and continues to unfold today for you, for our city, for our world, for the brokenness around the world, and for those in Aleppo who've been victimized and caught in the middle of a war that no one cares about. Jesus says to them, I did this for you, and as well, I did it for those who persecute you. I do do that for those who are battling over you and taking your lives. Jesus did that for all of humanity to say and to demonstrate and to make a way for us to know the fullness of God's love. So with all of that in mind, if you are here today and you have never come to a place in your life where you have fully known the love of God in a way that begins to change your understanding of Him, Someone said to you that God loves you, but now you actually know that God loves you. And that love inside of you that you are feeling is stirring something so deep in you. You know that this is not a momentary feeling of emotion or something that you do in a service and then you leave and you're going to go right back to the way things used to be. But right now there's something so deep in you stirring that you know that God's calling you out to something different in your life. He's calling you out to live the way he purposed for you to live. He's calling you to surrender your life to Him. And the reason that you can do that and the reason He desires that is because when He died on the cross for you, He took every moment, every thought, every word, every action that 
was a sin that fell short of what he purposed for your life, what he desired for you, that separated you from God. And he took it all in that moment, and he took it on himself. And because he was fully God, as he was fully man, when he was on the cross, he thought of you. He had your face. He had your name. He knew when you would live. He knew what you would do. And because of that, he said, I died for you that right now and you are feeling right right now that he's calling you to say yes to him he's calling you to turn your life over to him he's calling you to follow him and to know him so that you can be connected to God again you can live the life God created you to live doesn't mean your problems disappear it doesn't mean that you're perfect but it means that you have an advocate it means that you have God of the universe who brings forgiveness to your life when you fail but gives you life the life that you created to live that goes far beyond this physical world. If that's your desire, is to embrace that as you surrender yourself today, then I'm going to ask you just start to talk to him. Just start to pray. Whether you know it or not, God is present. He hears your words. He knows your mind. He knows your thoughts. So begin to tell him, I know your love. I feel your love for the first time like I've never felt before. And I want to know that love every day of my life. And so I'm going to turn from my life and I'm going to turn towards you and surrender to you. Just do that right now and make that commitment to give your life fully to him. And for the rest of us, if you have fallen asleep on God's love, and every day of your life looks like the day before, and the routine has taken over, and God today has jumped into your life again to say, hey, I love you. I love the person who's next door to you. I love the person who works with you. I love the person who drives by you every day. I love the family member you're going to see this week. I love all these people. Do you know, do they know what I've gone through for them? So Jesus, would you let us, not only in these next few moments as we sing and we worship, we give our lives to you, but Lord, throughout our week, throughout the season, throughout our lives, would you let us feel the weight of your love? to know the depth of what you've done for us and the depth of what you've done for the world around us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you in your name.